Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Sibylline Team Podcast. I'm Justin Crump, CEO of Sibylline, and your host for today as we explore topics of interest around the ongoing COVID crisis. Yes, the C word, you just can't get away from it. Specifically, we're looking at the source of the trouble and what that's going to mean for all of us. US President Joe Biden is imminently expecting a 45-day update on a US investigation into the origins of the pandemic. The investigation, led by the US intelligence services, is drawing widespread media attention with scientists, political scientists, and health experts all weighing in on the polarizing hypothesis of whether the sedition of the SARS virus may have leaked from the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. While evidence to support the lab leak theory remains purely circumstantial, the US investigation comes amidst strained relations between Beijing and Washington, particularly as the Biden administration considers further actions in response to Beijing's crackdown on the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong, and of course its treatment of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. How, therefore, will Washington's virus origin investigation shape the direction of travel for already fraught Sino-US relations? With COVID-19 still affecting much of the world, how will the ongoing feud between the two world's largest economies affect our response to this and future pandemics? Joining me to explore the topic for this week's discussion are our lead analyst for Asia-Pacific and resident China expert, Guo Yu, America's analyst and avid COVID watcher, James Hannon, and lead analyst for global risks, John Green. Team, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and, and discuss this topic. And obviously something we've been going through a lot in the office as we watch the progress of the investigation and indeed the source of all these stories that goes back to the start of the crisis, as we can remember, hopefully. Um, and Hugo, I want to start with you. And how does the US investigation fit within Beijing's strategic view on its relations with Washington? And how are relations going to progress on the back of this investigation? Thanks, Justin. That's a great question. I think, first of all, the row of uh, investigation into the virus origins, particularly the Chinese lab theory, is part of the overall US-China competing the narratives of the pandemic. So if we remember during the Trump presidency, they were competing messages from Chinese media, government, and indeed from the US counterparts, how one handles the responded to the pandemic effectively or ineffectively. The debate on the origins is part of that. On this sense, Beijing has uh, consistently and firmly rejected any suggestion of uh, this might be leaked from the Wuhan lab and actually, you know, very strongly uh, defended its response to the pandemic and, and indeed the viability of subsequent uh, WHO-led in-country investigations. And indeed, it have fired back using obviously the state media to, to have entertained the questions about a particular U.S. military bio lab at Fort Detrick. Even the foreign ministry spokesperson has entertained and called for an international investigation in the U.S., just as Beijing called it. China led the WHO team into China. The U.S. should let a team into the U.S. and to investigate there. Obviously, as with the uh, lab theory, all this is circumstantial with, without being you know, offered any you know, concrete evidence. But we can see this is basically efforts to compete in the narratives. And the government and state media also keen to highlight the reports of 
illnesses with uh, COVID-like symptoms outside China that took place before the outbreak in Wuhan that was discovered in December 2019. So all in all, in particular, you know, China was very critical of Washington's use of uh, intelligence agencies to carry out such investigations, arguing that, you know, this is uh, evidence that the whole thing is politically driven. Given this context, regardless of the outcome, I think Beijing will continue to question the viability of this investigation and, and continue to commit efforts to compete the narratives against that of uh, Washington. And this will remain a key point of contention as you mentioned, the already strange uh, bilateral relations. Yeah, it's an interesting point, isn't it? I think if you look at the arena of information, misinformation, disinformation, there's quite a few tactics one sees employed in this competing narrative engagement, I suppose we're seeing go on at the moment. And for example, uh, what the Russians call Infosturm, which is flooding alternative theses out into, into an area to, to see what else might stick or to cause confusion. And as you say, Employing a competing narrative, and I guess it's fair to say, from what you've outlined and from what we're all aware, that Beijing's had quite a lot of time to to prepare for this. It's not a new idea. This investigation is going. So it sounds like, from what you're saying, they've had a pretty good campaign plan in place to push back. I mean, how do you see this progressing relations? Though, I mean, if one accepts they've already reached a certain level, I mean, is this going to make things worse, or is the fact that Beijing has had time to think about this already? Is this just a game that's going to play out and it's not fundamentally going to change things? Or will this see a step change in relations? Well, I think in response to the COVID origins question itself, it all depends on what are the results, that what are the findings uh, the US government will present in the coming days? More importantly, what, if anything, they would do about it? If indeed, you know, there was evidence to suggest, you know, the, the, or to support the, the lapse leak theory or otherwise. If it's all about rhetoric and criticizing China being not very transparent, calling for more fact-finding trips to China, then I think what we'll probably see, uh, you know, China probably will respond in kind and just playing out its own narratives. So in a sense, a little bit like rhetoric or words. And what if Washington start taking tangible actions following the investigation, then you know, we can, we can expect a similar response. So it's all depending on how, how one plays the ball, really. Right. And I think we'll, we'll come back onto the scenarios and blame game theme a bit later on, I think. But James, I want to go to you. And why has the US undertaken this investigation at such a sensitive time in relations with China? Thanks for the question, Justin. I think, you know, harking on a bit of the points that Hugo made, particularly the, um, the political angle, I think you have to situate this report within the overarching approach that the Biden administration is taking as of late. I don't think that anyone would describe their initial approach to China as soft, but it has become notably firmer in the recent months. This comes through federal government legislation passed to tighten uh, tech exports from China, as well as the very recent fresh off the press bill banning engagement with Xinjiang over these human rights abuses of the Uyghurs there. I think in addition to, you know, these, these like normal, well-worn pain points you're seeing, Biden administration officials ratchet up both the discourse around threatening actions as well as like the rhetoric itself. I think there's been recent statements within the last couple of weeks by the Treasury Secretary, uh, Janet Yellen, as well as the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, up to this point of asking for this uh, unified approach to China and kind of calling upon other uh, G7 nations to join suit. 
So I do think that this investigation plays a, a strong political point in this strategy, as well as the fact that there is some, some notable movement in terms of sanction regimes and this tightening of actual tangible pressure on China in relation to these uh, human rights abuses and data privacy issues in Hong Kong. You're seeing this with the Commerce Department issuing another round of sanctions recently, particularly with um, entities linked to either the Chinese military or to Xinjiang directly. And I do think that this is the approach that the Biden administration is falling more in line with compared to what I think was a a balanced approach in terms of trying to engage and ratchet down uh, export trade war uh, initiatives, as well as still maintaining the pressure on the pain points that have been there beyond the Biden administration. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, plays out. I do think the uh, investigation also carries a bit of domestic political capital. You're seeing an overwhelming amount of support for these bills going through the Senate. And I do think that as the Biden administration looks to pursue quite an aggressive spending uh, strategy on the domestic front, this then provides some runway for them there as well, which is a bit of a tangential point, but one that's worth noting. Yeah, and I guess this falls in line as well with the concept of the recent discussion with Russia being, or certainly in our analysis, a reasonable attempt to try and remove that pressure point to allow the US to focus on China, which I think Washington sees as a much more important issue, despite the headlines around Russia relations and some of the actions that we've seen, uh, especially in the cyber domain, doesn't it? So it does still tie in. And you mentioned something important. I think you brought it on to business, trade sanctions, retaliations in the business space. And I guess for both of you, can you elaborate on those implications, particularly like the Biden administration, considering further actions around Hong Kong and around the Uyghurs? Yeah, certainly, Justin. I think one thing for sure, in our view, the direction of travel in bilateral relations, as you alluded in top, is showing no signs of reversal. James mentioned about, you know, the Biden administration maintaining a very tough stance on China, supported by partisan Congress, and on maintaining very hawkish stance. But the tactics have become more predictable. And that's, uh, I suppose, a good thing for the business community. And for us, you know, uh, following the, the, the most important bilateral relationship uh, in the world, well, arguably, what we can expect, uh, as James already said, there will be more sanctions, restrictions that are coming from Washington towards China on the issues of Hong Kong, on the issues of uh, Xinjiang. And that will have fed uh, people doing bilateral trade, obviously the Chin- Chinese entities, uh, Chinese, some Chinese individuals. But at the same time, that we can also see that China would respond like they always, uh, they have done so far, in kind, but with some level of restraint. So far, we haven't seen like China really sort of initiate a level up, if you will, a new sort of a attack round in, in sanctions and restrictions. They will probably you know, retain this tactic. And one thing we can sort of uh, highlight is now the Chinese government has recently passed a law, anti-foreign sanctions, and basically designed to counter against or given a better legal framework against foreign countries asked to contain or suppress China and take what they see as discriminatory or restrictive measures against Chinese citizens and, and interfering what they regard as uh, internal affairs. Such law would give uh, the government uh, a legal framework to take 
postponed in countermeasures, and, and indeed they will. And the potential implication for foreign business or investors that has interest or assets in China is, is that anyone who basically have an asset or interest in China need to pay attention to this new law and, and because they will be under the jurisdiction of it, any sort of a non-compliance may result in serious consequences of the you know, restrictions over their operations in China or indeed affecting their assets in China and potentially could be seized by the, by the government, et cetera, et cetera. So what we see is now, you know, um, the, the tit-for-tat playing out, which would have a wider interest on, on both parties, both the, the Chinese business and, and indeed the U.S. business in China as well. Thanks, Hugo. And that's a, a pretty comprehensive answer, Jane. James, what else have you got to add to that? What do you think? Well, I think Hugo really touched upon a real pain point for the Biden administration in this new law that entered force in mainland China, as um, it's called a blocking statute. And I've uh, seen that Hong Kong officials are looking at mirroring this and potentially implying this for the SIR as well. And I think this is grounds for what is expected to be a new business advisory update for entities operating in Hong Kong by the end of the week by the U.S. federal government, advising against potential uh, breaches of data privacy and the risk uh, of this kind of statute entering force and compromising company assets if, if it is approved. In addition to this, I think, you know, when it comes to businesses operating in Xinjiang and also in Hong Kong, there should be an expectation of increased scrutiny on the part of uh, U.S. compliance mechanisms. I do think that it is likely that you will see not only this strengthening of hard sanctions, but also of compliance mechanisms to uh, ensure uh, no violations are taking place. And this may spell, you know, a notable implication for some corporate entities uh, engaging in Xinjiang. I think uh, there's several that have protested the new bill that came to force banning engagement in the region, uh, including Coca-Cola and Nike. So you're seeing some supply chain reshuffling that may have to occur in order to stay compliant with these new laws that are entering force. And um, since they are taking this legislative approach, the ability to repeal these decisions uh, in the short term is is likely minimal. So these are long-term shifts that companies should be aware of in terms of engaging in any further operations in China and Hong Kong uh, and remaining compliant with U.S. entities. Thanks, James. That's a, that's a great perspective on that. I guess underscoring this is, of course, it is such an important trade relationship for both parties. So I guess they're treading this tightrope between obviously not wanting to shut things off completely, but I think both parties, I guess from my sense from what you're saying, are trying to pull back from their mutual dependence on this trade relationship and be able to start hedging their bets. So I, I see that drive towards diversification being very strong. And I guess one of the things we'll, we'll investigate over the coming weeks and months is how much that diversification around the region starts to shift regional dynamics and whether that leads to other tensions spilling over. I guess uh, Taiwan is always at the back of my mind at the moment. And of course, the issue of South China Sea and other areas of pressure can be applied in, in other dimensions. And again, obviously, you mentioned uh, supply chain, and I, I guess that's the key thing most of us are concerned about. Uh, going through that. Uh, I guess taking this more widely, um, and John, how will worsening US-China relations impact the ability of other governments to respond to the pandemic and indeed future global health risks? I'm afraid you know, you and I have discussed in the past that you know, this isn't going to be a case of the big event of our lifetimes. Is it? There's, there's lots of other things we're worried about. And uh, we've already mentioned the ominous words future pandemic uh, in this podcast. But you know, what are the implications for businesses of all this as well in, in that wider sense of how governments can cope with the next big one? 
Thanks, Justin. Yeah, I think it's going to have quite a negative impact overall. I think the the investigation itself, the ability of governments around the world to adequately respond to this pandemic. And I think the whodunit narrative is going to undermine efforts to collectively work towards strengthening global health security, particularly in the future for other global health risks like future pandemics, as you mentioned. As we heard from Hugo and James, whatever the outcome of the Biden administration's investigation, I think that US-China relations will continue to worsen at a time when we need greater cooperation in areas of health security, universal health care, and other global public goods to mitigate what I would term as more existential risks, such as climate change, which in fact amplifies the risks of future pandemics or global health crises. And I think it's important to remember within this regard that pandemics are not confined to territorial boundaries. Yet this investigation is trying to shape the pandemic, trying to lay responsibility for it within a particular territory. And because pandemics are not confined to these boundaries as such, there require greater coordination between governments. We are only as strong as our weakest link, so to speak. And national governments, I think it's important to remember, they tend to prioritize policies for their domestic constituents, which can be geared towards short-term interests rather than more strategic objectives, particularly when we consider electoral cycles and democracies or indeed more authoritarian regimes who need to ensure their legitimacy. For that reason, we need multilateral institutions in cooperation to hone strategic thinking on these issues, on all kinds of global public goods. But unfortunately, what we're seeing on the back of this pandemic, particularly with trends in the geopolitics of vaccines and the response to this pandemic to date, it's largely indicative of a lack of political will from governments to coordinate the responses, which collectively heightens the risks for all countries everywhere. So uh, I, I think within this frame, it's important to it's important for businesses to remember that public health and the global economy are not mutually exclusive. And this results in two overarching implications for businesses. The first implication of weak global health security is one that many businesses are already familiar with today, and that is government-enforced restrictions around the world that will disrupt supply chains, agricultural production and trading activities, which in turn drives job losses, food insecurity, and a raft of other socioeconomic consequences. The second implication flows from this weak public health infrastructure and global health security, which exposes socioeconomic inequalities and psychological stressors that have provided a tipping point for social unrest. And as we've seen recently with our recent quarterly report on extremism, it drives extreme recruitment in countries where there are poor social services and weak public health infrastructure. And this applies to all countries, not just conflict zones and lower middle income countries with weak governance structures or low social capital. I think some of us may remember an internal memo from the US Department of Homeland Security that came out recently, which was published in 2020, that warned that the US government's response to COVID-19 with extended periods of social distancing. And those social distancing measures and those public health measures were implemented to save the public health infrastructure from, you know, becoming overwhelmed with the cases from COVID-19. So unless governments coordinate and strengthen their responses to future global health risks, they remain vulnerable to security risks. Now, there is a somewhat of a flip side to this. However, the Biden administration may want to coordinate with China on more global issues such as health security and climate change. And we have already seen how cooperation between the Obama administration and the Chinese government ultimately led to the Paris Accords. But I would contend that uh, US-China relations, similar to what Hugo and James have already said, are far worse than they were 
in 2016. And for that reason, we're going to need to see a lessening of tension, so to speak, if we want to see greater cooperation between governments on global health security on the back of COVID-19 and indeed other, other public goods. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point you know, in the, in the way this has all evolved. And I think it's certainly something that has caused me concern looking at it is the blame game, I guess, in this particular example, doesn't really have any positive outcome that I can see. I mean, I can't see a result coming out from this where the intelligence services say it definitely didn't leak from a lab. China is blameless. You know, I think they're either going to say that we have evidence that it did and we're holding China responsible, or they're most likely, in my view, going to say, we don't know, but maybe it did. You know, there's some, some things that it did and something that it didn't. And whatever it is, all of it distracts them from a decent response. What I think has been so notable during the early stages of COVID, particularly from US businesses, was actually a business leader-led, and dare I say, chief security officer-driven to a large part response that I thought was very proactive and, and was ahead of the government's imposing restrictions. And it was marked in its difference, actually, between the US and the UK. And obviously, much more has come to light about decision-making in the early stages. But I think US businesses were, were actually pretty quick to put restrictions in place for the welfare of their employees, their customers and others, which they did sort of independently of where the government was at the time. And I think that was pretty commendable. And I suspect if you ran the modelling, the actions taken by large employers to be proactive probably saved a lot of lives a lot of disruption. And I guess the bigger lesson of all this is this is going to happen again. We've had uh, pandemics fairly routinely uh, throughout this century. And there are lots of drivers, I guess we're all aware of, aren't there, that are, that are making these things worse. And we've talked before about where the next one could come from. And Lab League is one possibility. It's actually not an unusual thing, sadly. The last smallpox death ever was a, uh, was a Lab League incident. And I can see you know, that as one factor, but actually it's just this meshing of the natural environment and, and the human environment does seem to be driving uh, vectors. And so when we look at uh, recent research into the amount of animals that could be harboring uh, viruses or acting as reservoirs of viruses, it seems to be much bigger than we have maybe anticipated two or three years ago. And of course, more and more human imposition on those environments, more and more crossover means more opportunity for these viruses to spread, you know, let alone things like resistant bacteria. Uh, I think we're all aware of the overuse of antibiotics and the risks of that. So, I mean, and that's even without touching pandemic flu, which, of course, is the thing we were all worried about uh, just over 10 years ago. And companies stopped piling Tamiflu and taking responses. But that was probably a near miss. It's just a, a great example, again, of the fact these things come up in global terms quite frequently, I guess, in political terms, more infrequently and become less of a priority because they're not frequent enough to be consistent emergencies, which is probably why we've done so bad globally dealing with this one. But therefore, as you say, a unified response so important. So I guess the, the ultimate finding of our discussion, if you don't mind me summarising, is you know, regardless of what happens here, it's almost certainly going to worsen relations between the US and China for reasons that we, we've discussed and understand. And the consequences of that are going to be clear for businesses. But all of that gets in the way of us actually having a better response uh, internationally to the next time this happens. So I guess more effort for companies on resilience, on doing your own planning, on thinking about how this could materialise in the future. And I guess learning the lessons of this this incident, not viewing it as a once-in-a-lifetime crisis or the one big crisis that someone's going to have as a CEO or as a board, but actually thinking this happens quite often. There's no real sign that we're going to be able to pull together very effectively to deal with this on a global basis because we haven't done so far on this one. And therefore, the lesson is we need to invest in our own resilience and sustainability. And I guess that's something that the security environment and, you know, has long pushed forward. But I guess I hope a big lesson for everyone is to take that home and and to make sure that we keep thinking about this and we don't just breathe a huge sigh of relief, you know, as things start to get back to something like normal, but we rather remember this period and we invest lessons back into our organizations. Mm -hmm. 
And I just add one point on the、uh, future pandemic, current sort of a geopolitical climate. If in, in our view, is a political blocker because we ultimately dealing with future pandemic. We need scientists to work together in research, and we need these leading labs to work together. Worth remembering before COVID,、uh, the Wuhan lab being a part of、uh, the Chinese、uh, Academy of Science. Is is one of the leading labs on on coronavirus, and it has a lot of、uh, international research programs. Some of them with U.S. scientists as well. I think the future outlook. I think it's part because it's even harder for international communities, scientific communities, to work together on future research programs. That is so essential for the prevention or the response for future pandemics. Hugo, that's a great point, and of course, the reason that. Virology Institute was in Wuhan is because, of course, the,、uh, the reservoir of particularly coronaviruses that was、uh, known to exist in southern China, and hence, of course, we had the SARS issue in the first place.、Um, that's a great point. So, as our team, thank you so much for joining me today. Again, I know you're all hugely busy, obviously keeping an eye just on this, but on everything else around the world. So, Hugo, James, and John, thank you so much for joining me, and look forward to speaking to you again soon. So, now with that, it's over to Ed Johnson, leader of our Insight team, who's going to run through the forecast of what we can expect. Over the coming week, so Ed, over to you. Thanks, Justin. Looking to the week ahead, arguably the most prominent、uh, event is the start of the Tokyo 2020 Games after a full year of postponements. The decision to stage most of the events without spectators will have eased the pressure around what will no doubt be a highly complex security operation. Though comprehensive COVID-19 prevention measures for all the games participants will present challenges in enforcement. It's notable, obviously, that Tokyo is in a state of emergency around the COVID crisis at the moment, and along with the widespread opposition to the games. You know, it prevents real challenges for the organisers. Any protests are likely to be peaceful in nature, perhaps occurring outside of official hotels, home to senior delegations. Any significant COVID-19 outbreaks among athletes, staff, or mishaps in managing the virus prevention measures during the games will likely further drive negative sentiment among the Japanese population towards the games. Shifting gears slightly, looking to South Africa, where on the 19th of, of July, the trial of former President Jacob Zuma for corruption reopens with the initial imprisonment of the former president. Triggering violent protests across、uh, across the country, particularly in KwaZulu Natal and Gauteng. Further developments in this case are likely to serve as a trigger for further protests, demonstrations, and、uh, and and the associated violence in the coming days. On the 20th of July, Turkish President Erdogan is set to visit northern Cyprus to mark the anniversary of the Turkish invasion. His previous visits to the island have been met with protests, so there is potential for some limited amount of unrest. With any provocative statements made by Erdogan, such as the decision around the reopening of Varosha, could also prove a trigger for for an increase in regional tensions in the eastern Mediterranean. Looking to Lebanon, which will mark the、uh, one-year anniversary of the、um, explosion there that killed up to 200 people, we, we're going to see we've seen protests over the last week or so about the situation in the country. We expect those to to continue in the coming days. With demonstrators accusing the government of stalling on investigations into the causes of the of the disaster, which have resulted in in police clashes, which we would likely to see continue over the over the weekend and into next week. If any of these events trigger an interest or further questions, please feel free to reach out to info at sublime.co.uk, and the team will get back to you.